Good evening. Welcome to another episode of Cold War Brew Podcast. This is your host, Danny Hai Fong. It is Sunday evening, May 22nd. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This podcast today will be a combination, about an hour long, of first uh, a topic I will be discussing as related to the new Cold War, this uh, new policy that Joe Biden is pushing across the Asia-Pacific called the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, what it means for the new Cold War, and why the Biden administration, why the United States is pursuing this. I'll do that for about 15 to 20 minutes. Shouldn't take very long. And then I want to get into calls. So be sure to get yourself in the queue if uh, you'd like to join the discussion for the longer Q&A, which should be about 45 minutes, uh, about any question or, or topic that you want to discuss, uh, please do enter the queue. But first, I, need, I wanted to talk about this because I think it's very striking. Here you have Joe Biden and the United States really facing a crisis of political legitimacy. So recently, the Associated Press, uh, NORC poll, came out and indicated that Joe Biden's approval rating is only getting worse, that it is only declining and uh, it is most starkly seen among Democrats, the decline. So the Biden administration is in big trouble. And there are many reasons for this. Most of them are domestic. Uh, but of course, there's the thread, and this is where the new Cold War comes in, of how the Ukraine crisis and the United States' role in it has only facilitated more and more economic misery, more and more instability, both economically and politically, uh, worldwide. So the United States' sanctions, its reckless policy toward Ukraine in order to fight a proxy war with Russia has had a, a really negative effect. And now we see that the Biden administration is likely to sign very soon the $40 billion military aid package, which was essentially unanimously voted upon in this very squeaky majority that the Democratic Party has in Congress. Uh, they, all the Democrats voted for this massive package amid what is really a mounting, if not already existing, recession. Because you have this extreme inflation. The cost of living is skyrocketing. Everything has increased in price. Of course, gas and energy has gotten the most coverage, but it's everything. It's food, it's rent, it's anything that you can think of in terms of purchasing. You are paying uh, sometimes 6, 7, 8, 10% more than you generally would. And of course, the big news has been the baby formula shortage. So the Biden administration just recently uh, put into place or activated the so-called Defense Production Act in order to address this baby formula shortage that was caused by, of course, uh, malfeasance by uh, the monopolies that control the industry. But it was weeks later, right? This has been a concern that has been talked about for quite some time. So despite all of this, despite the fact that the Biden administration has this undue focus on Ukraine while domestic concerns that are having a direct impact on his public approval rating, direct negative impact on his public approval rating are either being ignored or addressed too little too late. You have Joe Biden traveling to Asia for the first time in order to ramp up its new Cold War on China via economic means through the economic war. And so Joe Biden has spent this past weekend in Japan and South Korea trying to convince these two relatively big economies, they're some of the bigger economies in Asia and globally, uh, in, uh, and the whole purpose of the visit is to get them on board with the Indo-Pacific economic framework. So this plan 
which is not much of a plan. There isn't much detail to it. But the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework was mentioned in October of 2021 by Joe Biden uh, at the so-called East Asia Summit, just one of uh, several meetings that has occurred among so-called quote-unquote allies held by the Biden administration in order to put on this image that the United States is quote-unquote back, right? And it's back to mobilizing countries in the region against China. So at this summit, Joe Biden kind of made a, 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 a sort of a message about what this would be all about, this Indo-Pacific economic framework, and that it would facilitate trade, it would make standards for digital economy and technology, it would uh, essentially create a new supply chain it, for things like clean energy and infrastructure, and set up real guidelines for how these countries would work together with the United States around all of this. Now, what's very interesting about the IPIF, so to speak, is that it comes uh, amid what already is a broader strategy by the United States, by the Joe Biden administration, directed at China. So while the IPEF, uh, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, there's hesitancy by all parties involved to talk about China. The actual overall Indo-Pacific strategy specifically names the People's Republic of China as the principal threat for U.S. foreign policy to focus on. And this is directly from the Indo-Pacific strategy, which was released in February of 2022, uh, not a few months after the so-called East Asia Summit, where it says, quote, this intensifying American focus, meaning that the United States is focusing on the Asia-Pacific, is due in part to the fact that the Indo-Pacific faces mounting challenges, particularly from the PRC, the People's Republic of China. The PRC is combining its economic, diplomatic, military, and technological might as it pursues a sphere of influence in the Indo-Pacific and seeks to become the world's most influential power. So here, really, in this Indo-Pacific strategy, the Biden administration is saying that the United States needs to get more involved in Asia in order to counter the People's Republic of China's attempt to create a quote-unquote sphere of influence and become the quote-unquote world's most influential power. I mean, really ridiculous statements when you consider that China is literally located in the Asia-Pacific and that if there's going to be a sphere of influence anywhere for any particular country, it is its own geostrategic location. But nonetheless, uh, that's the overall strategy. All of the U.S.'s dealings in Asia is about China. And so the Indo-Pacific economic framework is the economic component to this that the Biden administration is pursuing. Biden just got off of meeting with Samsung, right, to try to sort of pull that corporation away from the Chinese market and get them to make commitments that it would create an independent supply chain uh, 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 through uh, the semiconductor industry, which is very important to the creation of all of this high technology. Uh, but one important thing to note about the U.S.'s attempt to create a sort of economic framework to wage this new Cold War against China is that the United States, it's very clear, doesn't have much to offer the region. So in this Indo-Pacific economic framework, the Biden administration has already made known that it is not going to open up its own market for access uh, by these other countries. So South Korea and Japan and whoever else, Australia, I think, is going to be part of this. They're not going to get any more access to the U.S. market, whatever that market is at this point. It, they're not going to get it. That's already been made clear. So that means that there are a lot of incentives or a lack of incentive to participate in this framework, to participate with the United States. Now, also... The IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, it's not a legislative, it's not a piece of legislation. It is not a legislative mandate. It is an executive order 
It is something that Biden, the Biden administration, his cabinet is pursuing on its own. So that means that in uh, 2022, in six, what is it, six months or so, five months, six months or so, with the midterm elections, will probably spell, I think, uh, or at least give us an indication of how Joe Biden will do in 2024 if he runs again. Uh, if there is going to be a political change, it's likely that this policy won't be pursued at all, especially uh, uh, by a GOP, which uh, it does not have as firm of, uh, I think, a political orientation toward a quote-unquote free trade, which is what this is supposed to, in some respects, promote among the United between the United States and these participating countries. So it's also quite clear that the countries that are already stating, minus Australia, which is, I think, a wild card in terms of whether it will even participate in this or not, but even if it does, Australia is extremely hawkish toward China. Uh, it, it wouldn't be a surprise if it keeps, if Australia's government continues to, quote unquote, decouple from China, really shooting itself in, in the foot and uh, damaging its import-export markets to uh, a point that uh, I, I don't even know if there's any real return uh, back to quote-unquote normal for Australia at this point. It really is a basket-case government. But nonetheless, and in a basket-case economy at this point, but nonetheless, countries like Japan and South Korea, while politically, especially Japan, but now South Korea has a new political administration, which isn't so friendly toward China, isn't so friendly toward the DPRK and any kind of progress toward reunification. Uh, there has been a, a right-wing, I think, a shift in South Korea with this latest election. But even so, these countries are going to hesitate and if not altogether outright reject any agreement, any economic activity that says that they need to participate in a, like an anti-China coalition and they need to weaken their economic ties with China. China is the largest trading partner for both South Korea and Japan, so it is very unlikely that those two countries are going to quote-unquote decouple from China based on some kind of economic framework with the United States. It's just not going to happen. However, that is the goal. That is the goal that the United States wants to pursue. It wants to damage the economies of the Asia Pacific. It doesn't care. It just wants to gain more of a foothold. But the problem with this, of course, is that the United States doesn't have the kind of influence that it, think it thinks it has in the region. China has already been spearheading massive economic arrangements, not just the Belt and Road Initiative, but China is a member of the regional and is the leader of the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. It also um, is, uh, or at least an applying member of the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. What used to be the TPP now is sort of an Asian-led version of the TPP minus the United States. But the RCEP is... Uh, an ex a massive trading block. We have 15 states that all center on the Association of Southeast Asian Nations and some non-Asian uh, countries as well. So uh, China already has such a huge foothold economically in the region because it is a part of this region and its economy has been growing at such a rapid pace for so long, 8% uh, last year, the forecast is a lot dimmer for the next year, but acu cumulatively, China has been averaging growth somewhere between 7 and 10% for several decades. And so its manufacturing base, all that it can offer in terms of high technology, its consumer market, all of that is just too valuable to give up. And the United States doesn't have any alternative, doesn't have anything really to offer. And it's already showing that by saying that these countries are not going to get more market access through the IPEF. What's likely to happen, actually, is that we will see the United States double down on military arrangements. And uh, 
Joe Biden was speaking in front of something like 30,000 U.S. service members, military uh, personnel in uh, South Korea. I mean, this is what we're more likely to see now with a, 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 a shift politically in South Korea away from denuclearization and diplomacy between DPRK and South Korea, as well as this renewed energy to target China, it's likely that we're actually going to see more in the way of uh, military exercises, operations, policy, than we'll see anything economically. And, and that just is, I think, an indictment on how this new Cold War is a reaction to the U.S. being an empire in decline. Politically, the Joe Biden administration is placing all this undue focus on what are counterproductive and extremely damaging foreign policy initiatives from Ukraine to the Asia Pacific and that and, and also Somalia recently the United States reversed a Trump era policy that will now send hundreds of special forces to Somalia to help uh, supposedly fight uh, al Shabaab but really uh, what it's going to do is continue to uh, devastate uh, that that country which has decades of damage wrought uh, through U.S. meddling. So uh, what we're likely to see through these moves is, one, the continued decline of the legitimacy of the, of the Biden administration in the U.S. politically, both domestically and abroad. This attempt to try to mobilize Asian countries is set to fail because these countries are not going to give up their economic ties with China And the United States is not offering anything really durable, anything really consistent and or attractive uh, to these countries, except just another uh, possible uh, trading partner, just some access to uh, 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 the ability, you know, some of what the United States has to offer. Uh, But uh, ultimately, uh, these countries are not going to choose between China and the United States. They're likely to say, well, if the U.S. wants to trade with us, wants to enhance trade with us, then of course we're going to accept. Of course we're going to sign on, but we're not going to do that at the expense of the Chinese market. And it'll be interesting to see how the United States maneuvers militarily in order to try to change that dynamic because that's ultimately what the United States wants. The United States wants to try to contain China, wants to try to cut it off from key supply chains. And uh, that's what we're seeing right now, despite all of these crises, crises that the Biden administration is dealing with. The, uh, 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 the United States and Joe Biden, the Joe Biden administration is focusing on containing China and waging this proxy war with Russia. What's what's very interesting, too, is that there were protests outside of the hotel that the Biden administration was staying at in South Korea. Uh, there was actually two, I think, or three sets of protests that had loyalties, right? There were some anti-Biden, anti-U.S. protests, and there were also those who were, I th- were protesting this. It's unclear, but, uh, you know, there is a significant right-wing uh, faction in, in South Korea, so, so there were definitely protesters out there also uh, pledging their support to the Biden administration. But uh, nonetheless, uh, the the political situation worldwide, I think, is is pretty clear right now uh, through these uh, failed or likely to fail policies like the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework and this overall Indo-Pacific strategy that the Biden administration has. It shows that this new Cold War is a priority. It is a priority. And uh, it does have consequences in the sense that you have the Biden administration traveling across Asia while people are hurting in the United States and traveling across Asia not to the benefit of, of people in the United States, not to the benefit of working people anywhere, but it's all about cementing hegemony and shoring up uh, the possibility of increased market share and uh, the capacity to economically isolate China, all of which is a pipe dream. So really, you could think of this as a big, fat waste of time. 
And uh, that is a lot of U.S. politics these days, right? A lot of time wasting, a lot of policies literally just geared toward uh, improving the uh, uh, profits and, and enhancing the profits of Wall Street and the military industrial complex and nothing else. And the new Cold War is a big part of that. And the Indo-Pacific strategy is a huge part of that. It really, a lot of it is all about the, mil- the health of the military-industrial complex and the health of Wall Street as both worry about the rise of China and what it could mean for the sovereignty of the overall region. But nonetheless, I am going to stop there because I want to spend the rest of the next 40 minutes talking to you all. All right. So I have two callers in the queue. Uh, please do join in. Uh, and I'm going to let Johnny in. You are now the caller. Hi, Johnny. Hi, Danny. Um, yeah, neoliberalism. That's the uh, that's what we're fighting against. And that's mm-hmm. I, you really summed it up really well. I just really love the way you analyze the whole thing from the political to the military to the geopolitics everything you know to the domestic policies uh is a really really good um you know analysis but i wanted to add that to that i wanted to add that during this while this is all taking place people in whatever country have are suffering here in the united states you could say that we're not really suffering as much as other countries right but nevertheless, you know, we, we, we see our wages has flattened out over the last 40 years. We see corporations running, you know, monopolies and, you know, it's neoliberalism. So, uh, you know, I stop and think and wonder what is, what's going to take, what, what's it going to take to truly get our country back from these neoliberals, oligarchs and corporations that have captured it. So, you know, it, and we, we're in a tough spot because in my view they are so powerful and they have so seeped into every aspect mm. our institutions and everything that in order to, to fight back it's not good enough to go protest in the street anymore it's not good enough to, to increase the number of unions it's not good mm. enough because they are so so fighting other countries that it's just not enough you know mm. um, I think personally you know, my idea is that there is a strategy out there to get our country back from the neoliberals, you know, and that strategy, though, means the death of one or the other, the death of the United States or the death of neoliberalism. Hmm. And I'm not sure we as a people are ready to go that far, uh, you know, and it's unfortunate because I think that if we were in control of the destruction, you know, we if we were in control, we would make sure that those people that are running these policies, these neoliberal policies and fighting the, 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 the communist countries, you know, in order to, to, to enhance neoliberalism, that I think that we, 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 would, we wouldn't go that way. We would find a way to, to trade among each other and kick the neoliberals out and say, no, there's more to life than making a profit, that some things should not be for sale. And I think that if we were to do that, then I think that we would come to terms with other countries. But again, you know, uh, that takes power. And the only way I think we could do this is to threaten the very people that are running our country, uh, threaten them by telling them that either you give us our country back or you go to jail for treason. Actually, I think that there's a really simple way to get that accomplished. But uh, again, that's, you know, that that's pretty radical. A lot of people, I think when you hear it, when you, hear the word revolution they get scared Mm. but i think we're at that point so that was my comment Uh, i think uh, again that was a great analysis well thanks johnny uh i'll get to the next call in a second but i definitely wanted to just respond you know no lies told there we definitely are at a point where we need a revolution uh of course that revolution has to be organized and and so i don't i don't necessarily uh I guess I don't necessarily oppose efforts, right, to organize unions and try to organize workers, but I am definitely on the, uh, I'm definitely of the impression that there, 
is this monumental crisis happening and neoliberalism of course is at the center of it and so we really do need i think a stronger like i mean marx and if you read if you just study marxism right from Karl marx angles lenin you can all these and even back then they were talking about the limitations of trade unionism the limitations of social democracy right we but we're at the stage where trying to just go and support whatever political existing political structure party like the democrats for example that claims to want quote-unquote reform uh, we're past that point because uh, we've had historical example after historical example of how uh, that just doesn't work actually uh, the more that you engage in that kind of activity the more likely that the system of neoliberalism, capitalism, imperialism is likely to become more effective and more cemented. So we definitely do need a revolutionary movement. Uh, and, and I do think that that will have, of course, a class basis to it here in this country. And uh, it's one that isn't really a straight, isn't really foreign to most parts of the world. And not even in the United States, where there's a rich history of class struggle here. It's just over the last two generations, two and a half generations or so, uh, there has been a real disconnect, a real alienation from that history and and from that kind of struggle. And it's only just recently that there has been more talk about the class issue, more talk about uh, power, and more talk about uh, oligarchy and the capital and the differences between and the antagonism between uh, workers and uh, owners of capital, rulers, the oligarchy, right? Uh, and so I think we do need a new political vehicle to harness that energy and uh, begin building the structures and the kind of that will lead into and help aid uh, real revolt. Because uh, the only way revolt, protest, uh, action, direct action works is when it ha- when it's supported and, and when it does have uh, the power of the people behind it. But I'm going to now uh, go to Armchair Daily. <laughs> Interesting name. You are now the next caller. Uh, hey there, Denny. Uh, hey. Can you hear me? I can. All right. Great. Um, so there's a, by the way, there's a bit of a wind where I'm walking. So mm-hmm. just let me know if, 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 uh, if there's, you know, gotcha. No worries. Oh, are you there? I think, I don't know if the wind is covering your mic. Hello. Um, I'm going to be on till about seven o'clock. So if you want to come back, if there's a less windy area, um, I'll let in Sean. Are you still there? Okay. Okay. All right, Sean, I'm going to bring you into the next caller and then try again with the other caller. Hi, Sean. Hello there. I think I'm unmuted. Can you hear me? Yes. All right, great. Um, I have a thought which is a bit uh, all-encompassing and, and pretty nihilistic, <laughs> but actually, it's, it's pretty sure it's not original. I'm sure I heard this and just cannot remember where, but essentially... The position was that a lot of the, or all of the benefits that we have experienced and thought of as the arc of history bending towards justice was really a temporary accommodation to try to essentially get some good PR Mm. since we were being compared to the Soviet Union. Mm. And I got to say, it maps pretty close because I'm 50 years old now, right? And I've seen the decline of the middle class for you know, my entire, um, uh, my entire life, really. Mm-hmm. And I have a pretty good vantage point because I actually lived, lived in a couple of different countries and uh, I was living in, in Spain when I was a kid and I've noticed things change here in the States and I've seen them change in Spain as well. And, and I, I think that, a lot, that the evidence seems to be that, you know, as soon as the Soviet Union was, was done... We have seen an acceleration of the loss of the quote-unquote loss of the middle class mm-hmm. in the West, and it, well, it sure maps pretty pretty suspiciously well mm-hmm. to see you know um, FDR and all the benefits that that uh, 
were approved in his time frame and how they started to get erased pretty much as soon as he was out of the picture. And the erasure of those improvements increased dramatically in, in the 80s, especially 80s, 90s, you know, and 90s and, and the aughts and to this day. So are we just going back to, is this just a, a regression to the mean? And what we think of as, as neo, neoliberalism has just been, you know, foundational for the country. It's really, if you look at our constitution, it is really all about developers, which they weren't called developers, but, you know, that's who they were. That's what George Washington was. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Landowners and property owners. The, the one obsession of the U.S. Constitution remains property. And I think we're just going back to to the you know to our fun or our foundation so to speak and that's pretty nihilistic because you know you, you kind of have to reach the conclusion of the previous caller that well the only way we're going to get out of this is with an actual revolution not just with a civil war so to speak you know of america becoming independent from the uk from a monarchy but uh, a french style actual or actually closer to where i live a haitian style revolution I don't see any logical way around that. No, I'm pretty sure that no way in hell I'm courageous enough to actually engage in something like that. Um, but I just don't see a way around it, and it's it's just feels like it's an insurmountable. Uh, I can see I can see why you know people everybody around me uh, rejects this idea because it just you know it just feels like such a humongous thought to think that the only way things are going to get better. For the for any, for anybody but the one percent is through a revolution. I mean, like we need our own support group. It, it just, I mean, emotionally speaking, it's just like such. Mm. It's just overwhelming. Yeah. I don't know where I'm, I don't know where there's a question about this, but <laughs> I just wanted to share it because, frankly, for most of the callers, uh, this is one of the few venues where you can speak openly about this. Yeah. And sure. uh, and not uh, you know put everybody around you in a in a funk because right. we're already there. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, Sean. Thank, Thank yeah, you. no, no, no worries. I mean, if honestly, if this is uh, the venue, if this is the space where people can freely air this out uh, and get these thoughts out, I can do that. I mean, I don't play therapy when I do podcasting or writing, but I do do therapy as well <laughs> as a part-time uh, gig. But but it totally, it's it's definitely true, right? We're in this moment. And you made a lot of good points. I mean, both callers, both Sean and Johnny made a lot of good points. And I think the overarching issue is that we're in a revolutionary moment without a revolutionary movement, right? We're in a, we're in a moment where, as the title of this suggests, we're in a myriad of crises. And all those crises should point to the direction of, okay, we need a new system. We need a new society. We need a new framework. We need a new, foundation and we don't have the movement yet or we don't have the conditions on the ground yet that really service that so so we're still in search and we're still uh, doing what we can to ignite that in whatever capacity we have the ability to do so and so uh, you know uh, the big point here about the Soviet Union, right, in the Cold War and how the end of the Cold War, the defeat of the Soviet Union, its dismantling really led into this unhinged, unrestrained neoliberal era uh, has brought us, I mean, I really like this point because there's a lot of people on the other side of the political spectrum who would say neoliberalism or like, whatever this version of democratic party led austerity it's it's un-american right it's not where it's it's not capitalism you'll even see joe biden talk about it as not being capitalism Uh, but both parties like to say this and especially the more libertarian-minded folks love to say that this kind of neoliberal uh, so-called state-managed capitalism as some will say is not inherent to the United States. It's not American capitalism, but it is. I like to go back to George Jackson, Blood in My Eye. He, That book is incredible, so I do recommend everyone read it. 
But in it, he makes a very astute comment where he says, in re- relation to the 1787 Constitutional Convention, uh, the real event that founded the United States as a, nas- a nation state, he says, quote, the work of framing the new nation's constitution proceeded with 55 persons and only two were not employers, right? So this is this is him saying that this was always a, a capitalist society. Uh, uh, it was always owned and controlled by capitalists and property owners, slave owners, uh, these kind of forces who champion free market, the most, the freest of the free market capitalism, right? Uh, and we are going, we have been going in that direction uh, for quite some time. And the fall of the Soviet Union was so important to this uh, because when the Soviet Union did exist, it was FDR himself who as he was instituting what would become known as a new deal, but there were a lot of emergency actions, kind of lighter policies to respond to the Great Depression before this. He even said that it was his administration, this is a direct quote, quote, it was his administration, it was this administration, which saved the system of private profit and free enterprise after it had been dragged to the brink of ruin, end quote. So even FDR himself, who's revered by a lot of progressives, uh, his overarching goal was not the improvement of working people, was not the uh, not to ensure that there was some kind of permanent welfare state. No, it was, it was all about a temporary resuscitation of the system of capitalism, which was on its knees, right? It was in the worst state that it had been in its history, and there was an emerging alternative in the Soviet Union, and then later China, and then later other countries, and since and over that period, there was an immense struggle to destroy all of that. Um, and the big moment was, of course, 1991, the fall of the Soviet Union, which uh, did give a shot in the arm to capitalism for a couple decades. And now capitalism is in its uh, uh, stage of, of real permanent crisis. And, and there isn't a Cold War that will get it out of it. Right. There's a new Cold War, but this new Cold War isn't the same, doesn't look the same and can't and it can't for many reasons, uh, can't provide the same kind of stability that the the first Cold War was able to provide. So I'm going to try to see if Armchair is able to speak now. Uh, armchair Daily. Let's see. OK, you're the next caller now. Yes. Sorry about sorry. the first time. Yep. Yeah. I, what? Like, uh, did I? When did I cut off? Can you tell me? You know, I don't really think you know. you were able to say anything. There, I right. think the either the wind was like covering the mic or something. It was just silent. Okay, that's that's uh, that sucks. Yeah. Uh, sorry. So yeah, I mean, it's, thank, thanks for taking my call again. Um, so my question was, uh, I guess two questions. One is, so as far as I understand your position, um, you think the, and uh, you touched on this in your previous answer, you think that um, a multipolar world would be better for the, for the, world, at, for the world at large. Like if China and possibly Russia... Uh, become a countervailing force, and to a certain extent they are already, but if they become a stronger countervailing force uh, to the U.S., then our world will be better. Uh, and, there, and there are a few, and certainly better in terms of you know peace and, yeah, I guess, security. Uh, um, and there are a few folks that I've heard communicate that position as well. One of them is Ben Norton, um, mm-hmm. who used to work in Gray Zone, I believe. Um, so my question is, um, I guess the first question is, why do you believe that would be the case? Why, why do you think that that multipolar world would be better than the current world we have today? Because, to be frank, I don't really think that when, you know, before the USSR had collapsed, I don't think we were really much safer, to be, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I think, and this is how I'll sort of and my question to you, I think the best, the better solution would be to have a stronger UN, basically, you know, a world government that would tell any country, 
U.S. or Russia, which, you know, is doing clearly immoral and illegal things at the moment. But, you know, any country, it would tell the U.S. as well, you know, during the Iraq war that if you continue with your illegal invasion, you're going to have to fight with a force that is, you know, as strong as yours. So this this world government would have its own. It would be funded by everybody and it would have its own military. Um, I think that that would be better than having, you know, three hegemons. Because really, mm. the difference between one hegemon and three hegemons, to me, it's kind of non-existent. I think you, you see that if, when you go and look at the history, you know, of our world when the USSR was, you know, that second hegemon. So that's my question, mm. and, and, and thank you for, for mm-hmm. taking my call. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, that is a... Yeah, those are those are good points. Well, I I mean, I do think, like, I, I guess the connection I want to make with these points about a multipolar world and, let's say, a body like the United Nations is that the the strengthening of a multipolar world would actually legitimize and uh, strengthen the United Nations and international bodies overall because Russia and China, especially China, but Russia to a large extent too, are some of the more most loyal participants in these organizations and uh, unlike the United States actually do. It, this is one of the points that's not really talked about a lot, but actually do adhere to what these bodies have kind of laid out, right? And, and I think Right, uh, China's huge contributor of peacekeepers around the world. Uh, uh, both Russia and China uh, play huge roles in the UN Security Council already, and have done many important things, like voting against sanctions, uh, voting against uh, U.S. Uh, aggressive policies uh, in, in so many different areas. But especially the sanctions question. So, I think a multipolar world would actually strengthen multilateral institutions and in China, especially, but Russia also, uh, they are very committed to multilateral institutions and toward having, uh, you call it a world government. I mean, there are some people, <laughs> some, some of the, I think, uh, more conspiratorial types who would take issue with that framing, but I totally get what you mean. Uh, I, I do think that multilateral institutions that do, uh, that are made up of states but have independence in terms of how they govern and apply international law are, are very important. It just so happens that the United States and imperialism has completely undermined their capacity to operate in any effective manner. But uh, I do think that they would strengthen in a multipolar world. And I think that there are other benefits as well. I mean, one of the things first before I get into that is – I think one of something that you're referring to, which is important, is that a multipolar world, as it continues to develop, will inevitably mean that the unipolar side of things, the U.S. and its allies, uh, who just go along with whatever the United States does, they will become more aggressive. The United States will become more aggressive. And so the stronger a multipolar world becomes, stronger China and Russia becomes, the more likely that there is going to be a real threat militarily uh, between these countries, right? We're seeing it with the Ukraine crisis already, uh, but uh, the United States does have a military objective against both of these countries that is really its prime objective in regards to foreign policy. And so that does actually spell uh, uh, danger. But I don't think that the fault for them is really on a multipolar world because I, I, I do honestly believe that neither China nor Russia want to. And I think their actions show, uh, especially before late February, that neither of them wanted to engage in conflict. And, of, and I'm of the belief that Russia was really, really pressured to engage in a, a larger military conflict uh, in Ukraine. Uh, but even just if you just look at before that time, both China and Russia were doing everything they could to not engage in uh, any kind of unilateral or, or wars of any kind. And were doing their best to respect diplomacy in whatever conflicts would emerge. So 
uh, I don't think the fault for whatever dangers come from the rise of a multipolar world uh, uh, reside on the side of the multipolar world, if that makes sense. Those forces, they do want peace. They do want security. They do want economic integration that would benefit everyone, especially the global South. And one of the major things I w- before I get to the next caller is that a multipolar world would bring real tangible economic benefits, especially, you know, given how the United States would respond in the West. Not sure it has many economic benefits for the United States. Of those. I, it could if the United States and the West would get on board, but I don't think that they're going to. They're going to continue to treat it antagonistically. But for the global South in particular, I mean, even the World Bank is projecting that just the Belt and Road Initiative, which I shouldn't say just because it's massive, but just the Belt and Road Initiative alone by 2030 is likely to lift out 8 million people out of extreme poverty and 32 million people out of what's called moderate poverty around the world. So these projects are already having a tangible effect in poorer countries. And so one of the benefits of that and one of the benefits of the multipolar world is that you will have the East, you will have the global South raising their standards of living, raising expectations, and potentially opening a door for what a new what a new world order if we want to call it that would look like uh, that's based on some of the principles or all of the principles uh, that uh, would uh, sort of would be congruent with you know a better functioning international order and and better applied international law and I think that can only mean good things for an overall socialist movement because you do not want people in despair. You do not want extreme poverty being where it is. Uh, that's not a recipe necessarily for revolution. That's a recipe for desperation. And I, I think a multipolar worlds can lay some of the conditions that we need to raise optimism, raise expectations in uh, poorer countries and hopefully sharpen some of these contradictions that exist between the unipolar world and the multipolar world, which, which, which could be very interesting too. But I see another caller, Amanda. Uh, this may be the last caller, but if there's someone else who wants to come in the queue, please do. I'm probably going to stand until 7 p.m. Eastern, so about 10 more minutes. Um, but I'm going to let Amanda, as the next caller, uh, hey, Amanda, you're here. Hi, good afternoon. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, something that you said, I completely agree with it. That the time is ripe for a revolution and we need to be doing something, mm-hmm. but there's no organization is what you were saying. I think the other thing that's going on is we don't know what does it look like, like actually for me personally to participate in a revolution. What does that mean that I'm going to be doing? And then what does it look like on the other side of it? Because it does seem rather daunting to redo a whole system that's been in place for a couple hundred years, give or take, right? So so not having that vision of what does it look like? We all know what we'd like to have, Hmm. but what does the path look like getting there? Because I think nobody even really knows what are the first steps. I think there's a lot of people that are much more aware that it's necessary. And this is, of course, a much bigger question than you could possibly answer in 10 minutes. <laughs> but this is, these are the kinds of things that I think about, and I'm so glad that, that there's forums like this, like your show here on Colin and other places, where conversations can start happening about, like, what does it actually look like and how do we move forward? Because it's not going to be about talking about who's in Congress doing what. Mm-hmm. We've got to figure out. You know what I mean? And I don't know what the answer is either. I'm still looking for that answer. But mm-hmm. anyhow, that's, yeah. that's, those are, I'd just be curious if you had some thoughts about even resources to look toward or countries to look toward as to what we might. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, Amanda. I totally, um, yeah. So, oh, sorry. Hold on one second. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. That I mean, that's that's real. Uh, I know. I see you, Anthony. I'll, I'll definitely get you in here. Um, 
Before anyone goes, though, make sure if you're not subscribed to this podcast to subscribe. Um, make sure that you're following the pod, following me individually here on Colin. Um, and of course, if you can't support me, the link patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. That's how I get by these days doing this kind of work. But um, no, that's look, I mean, in terms of what do we do? I mean, I'm always, I think in terms of, I can only speak for myself and speak from others who I've learned from, engaged with. And it seems like the best thing we can do right now is to one, really uh, engage in deep political education, especially with other people. I know it's gotten harder to do that. I know the pandemic has really, uh, I'm a therapist too, so I, I hear all the stories. I've experienced this myself. Social connections are kind of kind of strange right now. There's a, a, Alienation is more intense, so I get it. But if there's a way to p- do political education, study Marxism, study revolutionary theory, study political theory uh, and, and political works, uh, I would, t- with people, I would do, that's one thing I always recommend people do. Because um, it's it's sort of like a it's sort of like a good way to both build connections and also uh, continue to feed consciousness in the mind. And with other people, you can really be moving consciousness forward uh, beyond the individual. But also, I mean, in terms of other things, right? Like other ways to be involved. You know, I can't help but recommend that because, I mean, this is a podcast about imperialism. This is a podcast about the new Cold War. I think getting involved in organizations as much as able who are already doing this kind of work is a great way to to get plugged in, right? I mean, you do have organizations out there, Black Alliance for Peace, United uh, National Anti-War Coalition. Uh, they're doing anti-war work in really difficult conditions they're doing they're trying to revive some kind of anti-imperialist tradition whatever has existed and so there's always ways to plug in in those efforts um but but everyone is going to be different and at this time right i would say that if conditions were ideal i would say like we need a communist party we need a socialist party we need some kind of vehicle um but right now I can't recommend one or the other or whatever because, I mean, first of all, it's not my place and all the tendencies are different. But also, you know, we're in a moment where there's going to be frustrations. So and there's going to be challenges and there's going because of the way the material conditions are for working people and for most people. It just so happens that that, that kind of involvement ebbs and flows and uh, I think wherever we can get committed, wherever we can be committed to the overall trajectory of revolution is important. But I always emphasize study because I think by studying Marxism, by studying, right, studying the examples of what other countries have done and continue to do, by studying the nature of imperialism and then applying that wherever you can, wherever you can apply it, um, I think is just one way that we can move things forward in this particular context. Uh, Because the truth of the matter is, is that uh, subjectively there's only so much we can do. And this isn't to be nihilistic. This actually be optimistic. We can do a whole lot. We can be part of this revolution, this global revolution. But at the same time, objectively conditions have to, you know, they have to be at a certain point. And I think they are at that point, but we have a lot of challenges, a lot of things in the way that weaken movements, both ideologically and, and just materially on the ground. Uh, and so I think whatever we can be plugged into around anti-imperialism, which inevitably, in my opinion, goes toward trying to break the grip of the Democratic Party on the left. I think those that I think those efforts are are always worthwhile if we live in the United States and we're a trudge, you know we're kind of uh, going against the grain here. Um, but 
so let's see. Um, I'm going to let in. And so Anthony, uh, I'll let you have the last word because um, I'm going to make you the next caller because you're a new caller. And uh, yeah, so Anthony, hello. Oh, well, hello there. I really appreciate it. My gosh, I'm uh, sitting here with my flat tire and just waiting on a oh, little no oh, jack. That'll be good, though. <laughs> we're, we're moving along, so I'm glad I could listen to this. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, uh, in terms of, well, you know, I was just thinking I, on, I only called since the last couple callers and they said, you know, what would you be doing and all that kind of stuff. And you're basically, you know, uh, just kind of building up what you can right now and but that's, uh, you know, in terms of the positive, we should always be going towards the positive. But, you know, there's a time and a place for the negative. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, there are some areas where this neoliberal uh, illusion can be attacked uh, just in a real you know, low form level. Like, you know, speaking about talking about people in Congress, uh, you know, I think it's important for us to, you know, know all their names, know every committee hearing, know every bill number, do, do, da, 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 because half the time they don't, I can tell you, they don't even, they're voting on them. They don't even know what they're voting on. I've seen it, but <laughs> I talk about them to, just to discredit them because so much of their BS goes unchallenged. They like in the, on their social media, their Twitter or uh, their town halls or press conferences, their media interviews, like no one's even challenging them. So, but the cracks are there, you know, uh, for people to just, whether it's a call in kind of show, or like I said, a press conference or, um, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Um, and, and then just another random idea, how we can kind of attack these system is just, uh, you know, uh, feeding their, it's all about the algorithms and the AI and the, that's like the direction I see. They really want to go with this. Like they want to spit in, uh, the problems into a machine and mm-hmm. get out an AI answer. So we just got to feed their algorithms some bad data. Uh, consistently and uh, just chase them off their own shows. I mean, C-SPAN, Twitter. Yeah. All of it. That's what I'm thinking. MSNBC. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, wherever we can disrupt, I mean, it it can only be in service of the broader, broader movement. And so, so yeah, we all have a role to play. And I think that definitely, right. We do have to pay attention to what the state is doing. We do have to, pay attention to the politics. Some of us are going to be better at that than others. And so uh, whatever we can contribute in all of these areas uh, can lead us in a positive direction. Uh, but there is, a, there is, as you said, a huge, a huge place for the negative right now. And, and right. And, and that's, that's the moment we are in and we can embrace it right with some revolutionary optimism to understand that this world is changing it's changing fast that everything that i talk about on this show seems almost always seems to indicate a particular direction that the united states is going in versus let's say china or really just much of the world right is trying to get itself out get itself up and out of this rapacious neoliberal framework and uh, that struggle is very real and it already is producing some pretty earth-shattering history-making moments like this Ukraine crisis and and a lot of people became pessimistic or even opportunistic with the Ukraine crisis right just uh, trying to take advantage of this moment and make it the best for themselves but if we look at that moment more this moment more broadly we can see that uh, it's an indictment on what is a crumbling empire. And the cracks, as you said, are there. The cracks are there. And uh, we have to seize all the opportunities. We have to seize all the moments, seize all the times that we can to, uh, to fight, to fight back. And, and I think it's happening. I think that, there are more and more people. There definitely are more and more people waking up to this, this disillusionment, right? There's a contradiction between disillusionment, despair, and uh, the revolutionary optimism that we need. But there is no doubt that uh, there are both of those things. All of those things are growing, right? And so uh, we need to get together. We need to continue to talk, to organize, and to 
you know, get in where we fit in, really, uh, when it comes to politics and when it comes to uh, this overall struggle for a new world. But, I mean, this was a great conversation. Uh, this was a great podcast today. I actually didn't expect it to be uh, as lively and um, for the topics to be so uh, so deep. But, you know, I think we should continue to go in this direction, even though the co- podcast is called Cold War Brew. As I said in the first episode, if you were here, and I probably repeated this, this program is about the new Cold War. It is about just a general focus on that. But I am a believer that the new Cold War is a reflection of what is a a really fast-moving overall world political situation that connects to just about every damn thing that you can think of. So with that said, please do continue to come through to this podcast. If you have not subscribed or followed me here on Colin do so before you go. And of course, the best way you can support me is on Patreon and the link is on my profile. With all of that said though, I am going to head out. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday or Monday or wherever you are in this world uh, and uh, take good care. Peace out.